0: This is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. Venom. And Poison. Gamers! And we here at the Word of the Week are gamers. In case you somehow missed that memo, gamers are always looking for an advantage. Always looking for an edge. Sometimes it's just about practicing our skills so we can get good As the kids say, sometimes it's about just learning a game systems and finding the right combination of things to put us ahead on our adversaries. Once upon a time, before the internet basically ruined the industry, it was about buying gorgeous strategy guides filled with artwork, maps, tables, tips, tricks, and only occasionally completely inaccurate information. We really loved collecting video game strategy guides, like a lot. But we digress. The point is, gamers are always looking for an advantage. Which makes us a lot like snakes. And plants. And Medici's. See, our discussion a couple of weeks ago about skulls led us to look at a fictional poison from a beloved cult adventure movie and from there to a paranoid Hellenic king who spent his whole life making himself so immune to poison that he couldn't kill himself when he wanted to and had to ask a slave to do it instead. And if you missed those episodes, go back and listen to them. You missed some good stuff. But in those episodes, we kind of danced around the broader topic of poison and venom. And whether you're part of the plant kingdom, the animal kingdom, medieval Europe, Renaissance Italy, or the video game world... There's nothing better to give you an edge than a good venom or poison. As we pointed out, poison and venom are two words that are often confused, and they are also often confused with another word, toxin. So to recap, all three are substances that really screw up your body somehow poisons are substances that can be absorbed across the various membranes in your body, like skin, mucous membranes, stomach lining, intestinal lining, and so on, and then get into your body and do their damage. In other words, stuff you eat or breathe or get on your skin. Venoms, on the other hand, have to bypass your body's membranes and get injected directly into your body. And toxins are substances that are produced by biological processes and cause damage via Other biological processes. Okay, so that's it for the recap. Let's talk about poisons, venoms, and getting a biological edge over your opponents, which means we have to talk about evolution. Evolution is the process by which species change over time and even become new species. And if all you know about evolution comes from Pokemon games or episodes of shows like Star Trek and Farscape, speaking of things some of us really miss, if all you know about evolution comes from pop culture, you've got some pretty wrong ideas about evolution. See, evolution in such things is often depicted as something that happens to an individual creature. The Caterpie turns into a Weedle and then a Butterfree. John Crichton gets turned into a super-intelligent, big-headed jerk. Captain Picard turns into a ring-tailed lemur. And Captain Janeway and Tom Paris turn into super-advanced lizard creatures and make baby lizards on a swamp planet. But we don't talk about that last one. It never happened. That's just beyond our threshold for terrible sci-fi. Get it? Probably not. But anyway, evolution. The thing is that evolution is all about inherited traits that slowly spread through a population. Now, we've known that individual critters pick up the traits from their parent critters for a long time. Biblical stories are actually full of details about how livestock picked up traits like hair coloration from their parents. Seriously. And ancient Greek naturalists like Aristotle wrote extensively about the passing of traits from mommy and daddy critter to baby critter. And this was before we knew anything about genetics. Long before. Moreover, once Carolus Linnaeus in the 1700s started building his classification system for all living things based on breaking them into broad groups and various subgroups of growing specificity. You know, kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genus, and species. And scientists like Comte de Buffon, Erasmus Darwin, yes, that's the granddaddy of you-know-who, and most notably, John Baptiste Lamarck. Once we started classifying species and looking at the fossil record, we discovered that species of animals changed over time. And we began to suspect that various very different species shared common ancestors. And while Lamarck was the first to propose the theory that species evolved over time, he got confused because genetics didn't exist. And he couldn't tell the difference between a genetic trait and a learned behavior. And he also couldn't quite work out the mechanic for evolution. It wasn't until Alfred Russell Wallace and Charles Darwin started working together with evidence gathered by Darwin during various trips around the world that anyone worked out how evolution could work. Then the partnership dissolved because Charles Darwin published a book explaining the whole thing and most definitely accidentally didn't mention Wallace at all. Whoops. Anyway, Darwin called the process natural selection and it goes like this. You have a population of critters, thousands of them or hundreds of thousands or millions. And in that population, there's a little bit of natural variation. Some are taller, some have longer beaks, whatever. But that means some of those critters have an edge over the others. They can reach leaves in the trees others can't, or they can see predators coming in the tall grass because of their height advantage. Or they can get the juiciest grubs from the deepest holes in the trunks of fallen trees with their beaks. The critters that have that advantage are the ones to flourish and thrive. The others end up struggling. They kill each other fighting over the low bushes, or they get eaten by sneaky predators, or they can't find enough grubs. The disadvantaged critters die before they can have babies, or they have fewer babies because they are unhealthy, or their babies die because they can't feed and protect them. Meanwhile, the advantaged critters have lots of healthy babies who inherit their traits. And when that generation grows up due to some natural variation in the population, some of them are advantaged and some of them aren't. So the cycle repeats. And after generations and generations go by, the species now has really long necks or really long beaks or saliva that is so loaded with proteins that screw with the bodies of other critters that they don't have to chase anything anymore. Which is good because they can't compete with homeothermic critters. Which is exactly what happened in the case of some of the most famously venomous critters in the world. That is, the venomous representatives of kingdom animalia, Phylum Chordata, Class Reptilia, Subclass Squamata, Suborder Serpentes. We're talking about snakes. And specifically, we're talking about venomous snakes. Specifically, those of the family Viperidae. The vipers. Those of family Elipidae, Cobras, Mambas, and Adders. And those of family Colubridae, which is a messy pile of snakes that Biologists couldn't quite fit into other groups, so they lumped them all together. And the story of venomous snakes starts over 100 million years ago, when snakes started to evolve from lizards. Now, members of class reptilia are different from class mammalia. Mammals, like you and me and cats and bears and mice and things. They aren't homeothermic. That's a Greek word that means same temperature. Mammal bodies maintain their own temperature regardless of outside conditions. Reptile bodies don't. The disadvantage for reptiles is, of course, if it gets too cold, they can't function. They can even die. The advantage is that mammals waste a lot of energy heating and cooling their bodies, so they have to eat a lot more. When the world was a lot hotter, this was just fine. Reptiles and their ancestors could suck in heat from the environment, eat occasionally, and sleep the rest of the time. But when the world started to cool, and started to drop into an ice age like the one we're still in today, and mammals started to dominate the scene, reptiles were at a distinct disadvantage. Unless the weather was really warm and they were really hot, they couldn't keep up a chase very long, nor stalk for very long, nor fight for very long, or do anything for very long what they really wanted to do was sit still and conserve their energy and then strike the problem was unless that strike killed or disabled their prey in one shot their prey would flee and the reptile would be out of luck and out of dinner now the thing about eating is that you have to take whatever you eat and chemically reduce it into useful individual molecules that you can use to fuel your body And that's a very complicated process. So all heterotrophs, living things that eat to live, have various chemical tools to help them do that. And they are introduced at various stages in their digestive tract. For example, starches and complex carbohydrates take a long time to break down. So you, assuming you're human, have this chemical in your saliva called salivary amylase. It's actually a protein and it starts breaking down starches the moment they get in your mouth to get a jump start on digestion well these ancient reptiles ancient snakes had various proteins and enzymes in their saliva that helped break down the food they ate and because they tended to swallow food whole they had a lot of those chemicals and when those chemicals got forced into a wound say when the snake bit another critter they'd do some damage to the wounded critter. Sometimes, a lot of damage. Sometimes, very quickly. And so it was, that the snakes who produced a lot of those proteins in their spit and whose teeth were slightly more grooved or whatever, they would bite something, and the thing might pass out or die right then and there. And they wouldn't have to hold their prey until the life went out of it, or risk missing out on dinner because they didn't deal a critical hit on their bite. Now, apply evolution over thousands or millions of years, and you've got a creature with a distinct edge. Broadly speaking, snake venoms can be divided into three different types, and that's based on the specific cocktail of toxins in the venom. See, snake venom is an injected form of snake spit that is produced in modified salivary glands and secreted into grooves or hollows in the snake's fangs but the saliva contains a soup of different specific proteins and enzymes. Those are the toxins themselves, metabolic chemicals that do all sorts of damage. First, there's cytoxic venom. Those are pretty terrifying. They destroy body cells, like completely. They basically liquefy body tissues from the inside out. It's called necrosis. And different venoms act on different specific body parts. Some destroy muscle tissues, including the heart, others destroy the kidneys, and so on. Worse, even if cells in the body don't absorb enough toxin to die, the cytotoxins can still trigger the cell's own self-destruct mechanism known as cell apoptosis. Do you know every cell in your body has a pre-programmed expiration date and a self-destruct mechanism to make sure it doesn't pull a Logan's Run and skip out on the carousel? And then there's neurotoxic snake venoms. Those venoms contain chemicals that disrupt the chemical processes your nervous system uses to send messages from your brain to your body and back again. The upshot of that, or or downshot if you're not the snake, but the snake's food, the upshot of that is paralysis. Without your nervous system, you can't make your muscles work. And that can include the muscles that, you know, help inflate and deflate your lungs. This is the primary type of toxin most cobras, mambas, death adders, coral snakes, and sea snakes rely on. And that group includes the deadliest snakes in the world. Finally, there's the favorite of vipers, the hemotoxins. Hemotoxins destroy your blood. Specifically, they destroy your red blood cells and the various clotting factors contained in your blood, so you can't stop bleeding and your blood can't transport oxygen and nutrients. The result is that every cell in your body starves to death while you start to bleed internally and can't stop. And some hemotoxins can actually also cause your blood to clump up and burst your blood vessels. So you bleed internally from everywhere all over. While we're talking about snakes and venom, we also have to talk about their fangs, and about some interesting questions that arise whenever you talk about venomous creatures. First, fangs. Snake fangs are highly evolved and developed, at least some of them are. The colubridae snakes have the simplest fangs, though. They just have grooved fangs that provide a channel for their venomous saliva when they bite their prey. Which is why they bite, hold on, and chew on their prey to make sure as much venom as possible gets injected. It's a pretty unreliable system. That's why they are the least dangerous of the venomous snakes, on average. The alapidae, cobras and mambas and adders, have fangs with closed ducts running through them. And those fangs are hooked up to their venom glands. They bite and hold on and chew to squeeze as much venom as possible into their prey as well. But the delivery is much more reliable. Vipers have the most complex fangs. Their fangs are hollow too, but they are also movable. They fold up, and they have muscles at the base of them and around their venom glands. So when a viper is ready to strike, it unfolds its fangs into an optimal striking position, bites, and then contracts the muscles to squeeze venom into the wound. And that all happens very quickly. And then the viper just lets go and waits for the venom to do its thing. It's all very efficient, and that's important. Because the deadliness of a snake is determined by several factors. First, there's how much venom it injects into a bite. The more, the better. Second, there's how reliably the venom actually gets injected. Ciliberdae snakes lose a lot of venom into their mouths because the venom just slides along open channels. It doesn't all get into its prey. And third, there's whether the snake has any venom left. See, it takes snakes time to produce venom and fill their glands, so after a snake bites something, it has to wait to generate more venom. Which means if that first strike doesn't inject enough venom to incapacitate, the snake doesn't get a second chance. And now you can see why vipers are such efficient killers. Aside from the fact that vipers can fold up their fangs in their mouth when they aren't using them, and can thus have much longer fangs than would fit in their mouths otherwise, vipers also control whether they inject venom or not. And how much they inject. If the bite doesn't penetrate deeply, they don't waste venom. And if the bite is a good bite, they inject the right amount of venom very quickly and reliably. No chewing, no wasted venom, just one strike and dead. And then they eat. Which brings us around to a question. If a snake poisons its prey and then eats it, why doesn't the snake get poisoned by its own venom? And the answer might surprise you. Because you might assume the snake is immune to its own venom. But that's not the case. Many of the toxins in most snake venoms will do the same damage to the snake as they do to a person or a mouse or whatever else they bite. But remember that snakes are venomous not poisonous snake venom does not get absorbed across the digestive tract it breaks down it has to be injected directly into the bloodstream now we're not advising you to test this by drinking snake venom just trust us the point is a snake can safely eat something it poisoned but if it bites the inside of its own mouth it might just poison itself Now, here's the thing, though. If you want to get an edge over, say, a political rival, you don't have the option of evolving specialized saliva glands and movable fangs. And honestly, if we're talking about the medieval period, you weren't going to use venom. Because it's actually really difficult to extract venom from an animal. And venoms tend to break down very quickly once the animal is dead. or They are removed from the animal's body. You may have seen videos of toxicologists milking snakes to get the venom out by squeezing their fangs into a membrane stretched over a jar, but that was beyond the abilities of most medieval folks. Which is why the most popular poisons used for hunting and assassinations were actually poisons, not venoms. They came from plants. Now, as we mentioned in our previous episode, many ancient medieval rulers were worried about being poisoned, and many ancient medieval rulers were actually poisoned. The paranoia got so bad that during the Middle Ages, many rulers had prescribed methods of ensuring food was safe for consumption. According to records from the time detailing the proper testing of food, there were generally two different tests, or assays. The first was simple enough. Make someone else eat the food first. If they died, eh, the ruler shouldn't chow down. And usually, it was the person offering the food that was forced to taste it in the ruler's presence. The second test involved unicorn's horn. Yeah, seriously. The idea was, the horn of a unicorn was put particularly sensitive to poison. It would change color or exude sweat if it was exposed to poison. So rulers would drink their wine from goblets made of unicorn horn, or use cutlery made of unicorn horn to cut their meat, or just have a talisman made of unicorn horn around their neck. Which meant, unicorn horn salesmen could make a pretty penny in the 1200s. And you might wonder where they got all that unicorn horn from because unicorns are actually what we technically refer to as non-existent. Well, traders would gather walrus horn, or rhino horn, or narwhal horn. The Vikings were exceptionally skilled at hunting and killing narwhals along northern European shores and up into the Arctic, and narwhal horns were great because they could reach over nine feet long, and they were twisted and spiral-shaped, like a unicorn's horn should be. In fact, that is precisely why the common depiction of a unicorn today includes a spiraling horn. Because of Viking whalers passing off narwhal horn as poison-detecting unicorn ivory. So the Vikings cornered the market because they had access to creatures unknown by the rest of Europe, and because they traded on the credulity of paranoid kings looking to get the edge over assassins. But when it comes to gaining an edge with poison, no one is more famous than the de' Medici family, which you may have heard of thanks to a recent and popular somewhat fictionalized depiction in a Netflix original series, which we won't go into. But we do need to discuss the Medici family, because their library, the Medici Granducal Archives, contains some of the most extensive writing on the art of assassination by poison and general toxicology of any collection in the world. Now, the Medici family rose to prominence in the 12th century after members of their humble family emigrated from a little Tuscan village to the city of Florence. They started some banking and trade houses and did pretty well for themselves. But the family was just a successful merchant family until they got a little too swept up in Florentine politics and made a a few bad business calls, and the patriarch of the family, Silvestro de' Medici, was forced into exile. Then his distant cousin's son, Cosimo, took over. That was in 1434. Cosimo de' Medici, who would eventually be known as Cosimo the Elder, was well-known as a patron of the arts. And he funded many great artists. And he and his grandson, Lorenzo, became so generous with their patronage for folks like Donatello and Fra Angelico and Leonardo da Vinci and Michelangelo, who built their family tombs, that they basically funded the entire Renaissance and the namesakes of three of the four ninja turtles. And Florence flourished under their rule they were also tyrants especially Cosimo the Elder as numerous records in the family archive indicate one interesting letter written by Cosimo to an anonymous tipster included notes about when and where political arch Piero Struzzi liked to stop for wine and what kind of wine he drank and what might be added to the wine to end the rivalry permanently and terminally Cosimo's son, Francesco, is suspected of poisoning his older brother to ensure Francesco would become next Archduke of Florence. And there's some pretty damning evidence in the archive. But honestly, we can't even blame the Medicis for this stuff, because everyone was looking to get ahead, and poison was the best way. The son of King Philippe II of Spain was nearly poisoned by his own son in 1568, and the same year the King of France was poisoned to death, and Queen Elizabeth I was almost poisoned by her own servants in 1586. And this is before we even talk about the most famous of all the Medicis after Cosimo himself, the brutal, tyrannical, and murderous Catherine de' Medici, who controlled France through her marriage to King Henry II, and then through her own children for years. Point is, though, we can't blame the Medicis for their obsession with poison. They were just trying to compete. They were trying to get ahead. They were trying to gain an edge. And as gamers, we can't fault that. This has been GM Word of the Week. It's written and researched by The Angry GM and produced by me, Fiddleback. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash gmwordoftheweek. You can find more at gmwordoftheweek.com and theangrygm.com.